0: Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, principal consultant with Future Fuel Strategies. And with me today is Dr. Ashley Nunez. Dr. Nunez is an analyst, writer, and commentator specializing in transportation safety, regulatory policy, and workforce productivity. With over a decade of academic and industry experience, he has lectured globally on the challenges facing developed economies and has led research projects sponsored by the Department of Defense and Department of Transportation. Dr. Nunez holds academic appointments at Harvard University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He earned his Ph.D. in engineering psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His doctoral dissertation examined the scientific merit of raising workforce retirement ages. Dr. Nunez's current research explores challenges at the intersection of technological innovation and public policy. His work has been covered by The Economist, The Guardian, and The Financial Times, among others, and that's how he came to my attention. Ashley, welcome to the program. So we'll go right into the first question. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing in the transportation at ARENA recently with respect to autonomous mobility? Because Some of the things that you've been doing are so interesting and and that's really how what I've been following um, in your work in particular recently and how you sort of came to my attention.
1: Sure, of course. Uh, Well, the work my colleague Kristen Hernandez and I have been doing has been looking at the economics
0: of driverless
1: technology. So if you look uh, at the autonomous vehicle space, most of the attention Tends to focus around the regulatory framework that is required to bring this technology to market. There's quite a bit of emphasis on the technical challenges as well, things like lidar, et cetera and then finally, there have been questions more broadly about how this technology can actually benefit people and what it means for shareholders and stakeholders in the space itself and you know we, we have taken a different perspective. we've essentially asked the question. If this technology can fundamentally change public health outcomes, which is what the biggest, greatest claim of autonomous vehicles is, like, look, uh, you're going to see dramatic Uh improvements in public health. We ask the question, can people actually afford it? Because that's Uh ultimately what this comes down to is, you know, you, you can have all types of technology that dramatically changes how we move, how we sleep, how we function for the better, But if people can't afford the technology, then many of those gains, those positive externalities will not necessarily be realized. So my colleague and I have been taking a look at the economics of this, and what we discover is certainly somewhat troubling, to put it mildly.
0: Tell us about that. What's the biggest thing that that really has kind of caught your attention and and troubled you as you and your colleague have sort of delved into this, this research area?
1: Well, what we have discovered, well, let me take a step back for a second. The, when we talk about autonomous vehicles, we, we focus our efforts specifically on the so-called robo-cab model. And this is mm-hmm. a model essentially where you know people go out and hail an autonomous taxi, much like you go out and hail a cab today. Now, companies like Uber, Lyft, BMW, GM, Ford are all not only investing in autonomous vehicle technology, but they are also banking some of their profitability hopes in part on the idea that they will have RoboCabs. Mm -hmm. However, you know, we say, look, if, if it is the case that using a RoboCab is safer, what you need to be able to do is incentivize people to give up their cars today. What we do effectively is we look at the cost of car ownership today, conventionally driven vehicles. We look at the cost of ownership, and then we compare that cost to what we project a cab would cost on a per-mile basis. And what uh-huh. we discover is that the, the real challenge that RoboCabs have is a challenge that plagues the taxi industry today, which is the fact that the utilization rates of these vehicles are very, very poor. The numbers vary by the market itself. So in in San Francisco, for example, currently a taxi is occupied. We estimate, based on looking at some BLS data, we estimate about 44% of the time. If you look at a market like Los Angeles, it tends to be a little bit higher. It's about 56 to 58% of the time. And in a place like Beijing, it's it's about 62, 63%. And uh, what that that effectively means is that a large percentage of the miles that are traveled by a taxi don't have a fair-paying passenger in the back. And the reason why that matters, of course, is because if you don't have a fair-paying passenger in the back, the cost associated with dead mileage is effectively passed along to the consumer when you do have someone Uh. in the back, which in turn Uh. pushes fares up. That is effectively the most important factor that is Uh. poised to impede the ability to effectively have a cost competitive fare. But it is not the only factor. A larger issue, uh, or I guess an equivalent, problem of equivalence effectively, is the profit margins that many of these companies are expecting. So, you know, companies like Uber, BMW, et cetera, have effectively said, look, we are expecting margins of between 20 to 30 percent as a consequence of deploying RoboCabs, autonomous vehicle technology, et cetera. And this is a problem as well, because the larger the margin is that the firm is expecting, the higher the fare needs to be. So based on our analysis, at least uh, you know, using publicly available data, what we have found is that if you if you consider the margins that are seen today in, in the taxi industry, and I'm not talking about Uber and Lyft, I'm just talking about the taxi industry, what you would expect to see in an autonomous vehicle robocab scenario is a reduction in profits by about 37 percent assuming it's the case, you could fill up your cab for 100% of the miles. And this is very, very problematic because, first of all, it's virtually impossible to make sure your cab is always occupied. To have 100% utilization is, frankly, unrealistic. But what Uh we are able to demonstrate is that even with 100% uh, utilization, you would still need to reduce your profit expectations by 37%. Now, some people might say, well, if I'm an Uber or a Lyft, uh, you know, yes, I'm I'm willing to live with a little bit less profit, and my response to that is well, if that's true, you're better off just going off and starting a taxi company, a regular taxi company. I don't know why you would invest <laughs> in an autonomous vehicle uh, setup, right? It just right. seems a bit uh, I- irrational.
0: So what really got my attention about this research is there was a quote. I mean, this is exactly what you're talking about, and you say in USA Today. And by the way, I will I will link this in the podcast post so that people can easily reference it. But you say exactly, exactly what you're saying now. You said, assuming current market conditions persist, our work shows that hailing a RoboCab would actually cost consumers significantly more on a per mile basis than owning a car today. And what is so incredible to me is that I've never seen anyone talking about that. You know, I've been doing work looking at what's happening in cities and every city, you know, that I've researched, I mean, all the major ones and, and smaller ones, you know, from the Miamis and the Columbuses to the New Yorks, to the L.A.s, to the Salt Lake Cities, to the Minneapolis, everyone has jumped on this autonomous vehicle train in the hope that, you know, autonomous vehicles will reduce congestion, reduce air pollution, you know, help meet uh, climate obligations, because many of these cities have now signed on to, are committed to implementing the terms of the Paris Agreement.
1: What I would say is, you know, you talked about a reduction in congestion and, um, and a reduction in air pollution. It's important to remember that when it comes to autonomous vehicles, the two are, of course, very different from each other. If you assume it's the case that an autonomous vehicle did not have an electrified powertrain, you would certainly still see some improvements in air quality as a result of eco friendly driving. That being said, the dream that is sort of put forward is you will have less congestion. And the only way you can have less congestion using autonomous vehicles is if you can incentivize people to engage in ride pooling, right? Where multiple people get into a, a, a RoboCAD um, and speed off to their destination or a multitude of destinations. If everyone goes out and buys their own autonomous vehicle, that doesn't really do so much for congestion, because you have the yep. same number of cars on the road. Which is the other problem with the with, with the robo model, and we have alluded to this in our in a, in a paper we released a few months ago, in which we said, look, it's certainly possible that you could incentivize people to pool their rides effectively. The problem with this approach is that when you have multiple fare-paying passengers in a car, in a taxi. What that effectively does is it elongates the travel time because now you have people going to different places. So the current occupancy in a car in the United States currently is about, according to 2018 data, it's about, this is the National Household Travel Survey. It's about 1.63. The actual Mm -hmm. estimate we suspect uh, is a a little bit lower, but it's about 1.63. And we have estimated, uh, you know, You would need—I mean, effectively—you would need an occupancy of 2.2 to 2.5, so a significant increase in the occupancy Mm -hmm. of a car in order to get some of these economics to work. And the question then is, do you really want to pool your ride? The other part of it, of course, are privacy concerns that people often have, you know, especially when it's different from taking a, a, you know, a train or a bus where you have a bit more space, but in a car, it's quite different.
0: Some of the issues that have been raised about autonomy are are very interesting because, you know, just myself as a researcher, but also, you know, as a woman, I'm not keen on sharing. I think a lot of women, (laughs) and I don't think I'm the only woman out there who's not keen on sharing is caring.
1: I would just say that I'm a man and I'm not keen on sharing either. So
0: uh. (laughs) it knows no gender bounds. And also the practicality. I mean, you want to get from A to B. You know, I don't want to pull my, you know, my Uber. I don't want to do that now, from you know, from the safety and privacy standpoint, but also from the convenience standpoint. People want to get from point A to point B, and uh, they want to do it as quickly, painlessly, and hopefully in a least costly manner. But they will, you know, people will will pay for that. So it's kind of interesting. So what I wanted to ask you was. Considering some of the research that you've done, how should autonomous technology be deployed? You said in a recent article in Nature, by merely rehashing the talking points of the self-driving industry, well-meaning academics draw attention from the most important question that we should be asking about this technology. Who stands to gain from its life-saving potential? So my questions to you are, who does actually, and and who should, and I'm also kind of curious because again, I, I it's not like I've seen that this out there, just like you say in the nature article. So I'm wondering what the reaction to this work has been from you know the mm-hmm. autonomous technology industry, the auto industry, you know, and or from from policymakers.
1: Uh, well, you asked a few things there, so let me let me uh, go through <laughs> yeah, this piece. that's that's okay. Well, so let's just talk for a second about the premier talking point of AV technology, which is the fact that it can help save lives. If you look, let's just take the United States as an example. If you look at the United States and you look at road fatalities, one of the things we know is that poor people are disproportionately more likely to die on the road. Now, there are many reasons for why that's the case. Very often, they tend to live in neighborhoods that lack Proper access or timely access to medical care. But another reason why is because poor people are disproportionately more likely to own older vehicles. While these vehicles, the vehicles they own, do conform to federal motor vehicle safety standards, they lack some of the advanced safety features that have undoubtedly helped improve public health outcomes. So things like blind spot detectors and you know, a lot of these types of technologies. So, which is why when you look at uh, accident data, and Sam Harper is an epidemiologist um, at McGill uh, University, and he has been able to show this very elegantly, that uh, if you look at statistics, uh, effectively it's poor people that are dying on the road at a significantly higher rate than wealthy people. So, if there's one group of individuals that stands to benefit from this technology, it's poor people. And this is where cost comes in, because poor people need to be able to afford the technology in order for its life-saving benefits to be realized. But so few people, uh, policymakers, um, individuals in in the AV industry, actually talk about who are the individuals, whose lives are we actually saving. You know, we hear these very romanticized stories about how Life is going to be safer, it's going to be greener, the air is going to be cleaner Without, right. and nobody ever ever seems to ask the question, well, you know, who does this technology actually benefit? Now, I would say this: there is a residual benefit even to poor people when it comes to AV technology. So if we think about the environmental benefits of autonomous vehicles specifically, one of the things we know is that poor people are disproportionately more likely to suffer worse public health outcomes as a consequence of vehicle emissions. And one reason why is because poor people often tend to live near highways and interstates, et cetera, where you see a lot of uh, congregation of vehicle emissions. So even if you had some permeation, some penetration of AV technology Mm -hmm. in the upper income strata, one could make the argument you will see some improvements in public health for poor people as well, That's that's an argument that certainly could be made. But that being said, uh, if your goal is to save lives, then this comes down to money. And I I am yet to hear policymakers have an honest and open discussion about, you know, how this technology can be leveraged in such a way, such as, uh, or rather so as to reduce socioeconomic disparities in health on the nation's roads.
0: Has there been much of a, of a reaction to this? Is that something that you think policymakers will start to look at in the future, either in this administration or potentially a democratic one down the road?
1: Well, what I would say is that I think I'm sort of a pariah in the AV community <laughs> for, uh, for
0: uh,
1: you know. When we released our paper showing the economics of AVs don't work, I, I, I received quite a lot of very angry emails from numerous people in the industry who were trying to poke holes through our work and saying, oh, you just don't understand. But, you know, and they say you're just being a pessimist. You know, my response to this often is that if the goal of science is to drive better public policy our commitment as scientists should not be to optimism or to pessimism, but rather to realism. If you look at the current administration, I, I, I actually think that many of these issues are uh, administration independent. It's not the case, for example, that with the previous administration, that people were really talking about, you know, socioeconomic inequality in regards to road yeah. transportation um, and autonomous vehicle technology. I mean, and you haven't even heard a word about any of these issues coming out of Congress and all the people who are putting all these bills forward, these congressmen and, you know, the, the the K Street crowd, as I would call it, everyone thinks that there's some sort of big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow associated with this technology. And the available evidence would suggest there isn't. That's yeah. not to say that the, the technology can't work and can't be profitable. However, what we suspect based on the data we have looked at is that the reality of how autonomous vehicles will work in the future mobility ecosystem will be very different than what we're told.
0: Interesting. How do you, what can you proffer kind of a vision? Kind of a, you know, what does that really mean? Well, you know, think, what, what uh, would that, it, what could it look like? Sure.
1: I mean, I, I think what the, it's highly likely, highly likely that this technology will be geofenced. It will be speed limited. And Uh both of these characteristics matter because effectively by geofencing your technology, you are limiting the ability of the technology to penetrate the market. Let's take Waymo, for example. So Waymo operates in four Phoenix suburbs currently out in Arizona. Which means that if you want to take a quote-unquote driverless Waymo, and it's not driverless, of course, because there's a safety driver and an armada of safety engineers who are watching over the car from a remote location. But let's throw that off to the side for now. If you want to hail a, a Waymo a Waymo 1, um, effectively what it means is that you can only do so in certain regions of the Phoenix area. And the reason Mm -hmm. why this matters, of course, is I don't understand how you envision or how can you incentivize someone to give up their car, a regular vehicle, to ride Mm -hmm. a a Waymo robo-taxi, if you will, if that robo-taxi can only take them to certain places at certain times, subject to weather conditions and subject to certain speeds. It's simply Mm -hmm. not not possible. Now, I recall Mm -hmm. last fall when Waymo shortly before they launched and their, their, their chief was talking about autonomy. And he said, he made a comment to the effect of, well, uh, you know, who would have thought, uh, you know, autonomy would be so hard. And I remember watching this and having a good chuckle. And I turned to a colleague and I said, who would have thought, I think we all thought that the real joke is the fact that no one in the industry ever told them that. But there was a wonderful interview. I, I, I forget the name of the reporter. There was a, he was a Wall Street Journal reporter, and he was at a press conference uh, for one of these car companies that was developing uh, developing autonomous vehicle technology. And this particular, the head of the organization went up, was talking about all the great things their AV technology could do. So the reporter walked to the back of the room, and there were some engineers there, and said, "Oh, this is amazing! You you have you know you ma- you managed to get your RoboCab to do all these things." And the engineer looked at the reporter, uh, because the reporter talked about this in the story. Um, The engineer looked at the reporter and said, yeah, we don't know how to do that. We are pretty sure there's no way we can do that. Um, And we have no idea why the CEO said that could actually be done.
0: Yikes. (laughs) Which
1: which I thought was pretty amusing. Uh, but It it shows a a complete disconnect between what people are telling us and what the reality on the ground is.
0: You know what that sounds uh, like to me? It it sounds like Theranos is what that sounds like to me, if we can draw a line. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, you know. The CEO says one thing and the staff says another
1: Sure, of course. I mean, the question is whether or not the CEO actually knows what the reality on the ground is. Right now, Theranos, yeah. of course, uh, was, was a bit of an unusual case just because it was clear yeah. that a lot of the informa- information was being compartmentalized up at the top. But in the case of AVs, at least, I mean, look, uh, you know, let, let's say Uber, for example. So Uber has, you know, had its IPO recently. And um, all these investor notes that come out uh, that talk about Uber, Lyft for that matter as well all ultimately talk about profitability and the road to profitability sort of lies with autonomous vehicle technology. Absent autonomous vehicle technology, these companies have a business model that is simply unsustainable, unless they are willing to raise their prices. And raising their prices doesn't really help them because that does not help them get to the market they actually want. And the market they actually want is individuals who currently own vehicles. That's the market after. You know, Uber's CEO has been very upfront about this. You know, he has said, look, our goal, the mission of our company is to disrupt personal vehicle ownership. And in order to do that, you have to offer people a price point that they are willing and able to afford. And what yeah. we are saying is, look, this is simply not possible based on a constraints of the mobility on demand industry that few people have ever talked about. I mean, when we put out our study, I, you know, and I got a lot of angry emails, people were saying, oh, well, our prices are much lower when we did our estimates. And our response was, you're correct. Um, In fact, our estimates are not that far off from some of the estimates we have seen from the car companies and management consulting companies themselves. But what we Uh have done is we have have accounted for the types of margins that these companies would want to see. We have accounted for so-called safety oversight costs um and finally most importantly we have accounted for the inefficiencies that exist in the market that you have to uh, be aware of if you're trying to run a fiscally viable business and that's when you know i got a lot of uh, angry emails and they said oh well we we'll, we'll find a way to make it work my favorite quote is oh it will work once we achieve scale <laughs> which is which is just sort of this nebulous statement in in my view at least Well. So,
0: don't you think that there's some similar lines that, or, or some similarities that we can also see with the development of, of electric vehicles? Because that's kind of a similar message: is it'll work when we get to scale. But wow, that's a huge—it's a huge gap between now, where we're, we're not really at scale, and then, <laughs> and what will have to be done, you know, to sort of you know, make that happen, not just in the U.S., but but in other countries uh, around the world? Do you see sort of similarities there or not?
1: There are multiple issues. The first are the technological challenges associated with bringing electric vehicles to market, uh, much like bringing autonomous vehicles to market. So on the technical end, you know, we have things like, uh, you know, the energy density of batteries is just nowhere near, or batteries rather are underpowered relative to their weight compared to gasoline, for example. The other challenge when it comes to electric uh, vehicle electrification, of course, is price. These vehicles still uh, have a price point that is significantly higher than the status quo. Uh, You know, people have said, I I, I recall, I believe it was in March, uh, I think it was March of this year, where people were saying, oh, look, electric vehicles are are really taking off in Norway. I think it was the first time that um, I think it was something yeah. like sixty percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was some, yeah. Some, somewhere in that range, right? And of course, there's a certain irony to to Norway selling so much, so many electric vehicles because of course this was hevi- <laughs> heavily subsidized. But more importantly, the subsidies come from selling oil and natural gas. Um, Correct. <laughs> so there's a certain ir- irony there. But but but, but, right, yes. but uh, anyway, you know, throwing that off to the side. Uh, but even with those subsidies. Uh, You know, you you would expect it to be higher if the car is effectively, I would not say free, but if you have no VAT, if you don't have to pay for parking, um, you know, you can use HOV lanes, you can use the ferries, Uh you know, without any issue. I'm surprised that, uh, you know, the penetration rates weren't higher. But that being said, these these, these types of policies are also fiscally unviable. And we are beginning to see that in Norway today, where they are pairing yeah. back some of the subsidies. We see the same thing in China, where uh, in the China. Chinese government, uh-huh. right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Absolutely. Where they're they pairing back the, the, the magnitude of the subsidies, and they're now trying to pair those subsidies with the range of the vehicle itself. And then you have, uh, you know, certain political challenges associated with with providing incentives or disincentives, things like a carbon tax, for example, which is a, you know, which is a favorite of many uh, economists, but has its own challenges, certainly. So, yes, I, I would say there are a lot of parallels between the, you know, the challenges the electric vehicle industry faces um, and, and you know, that are similar to the autonomous vehicle industry. Although it is amusing yeah. as well that a lot of people who pump or who seem to promote autonomy just Always seem to somehow assume that an autonomous vehicle will be an electric vehicle, and I've never understood yeah. that. It just—it just seems like a very strange, uh, it seems like very strange reasoning to to follow. But um, anyway, yeah. to
0: each his own. Well, and and that's that's something that I've actually researched myself because it's like, well, if you if you look at Even the most progressive of the electric vehicle forecasts, probably one of the most progressive organizations, I would say, is probably Bloomberg. So let's say 50, I think theirs is uh, 57% of sales globally uh, will be electric vehicles by, I think it's 2040. Well, if if we even accept that as inevitable or or true, there's still the other 43%. You know, of, of, of vehicle sales, which one would presume would, would be internal combustion engines. Then you have the legacy fleet that is out there globally in the U.S. and, 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 and in other countries. So, yes. And if we look at the timelines for autonomous vehicles, even though they're rosy and now we're beginning to see them scaling back, there will be a huge chunk of vehicles just looking at people's own timelines what they say is going to happen by when there will be a 20 year period where supposedly this technology is available and out there in the market and most of those vehicles are going to be you know internal combustion engines until we reach this you know progressive uh, you know sort of tipping point so you know kind of logically or at least from a you know qualitative view i mean the technology will end up more in <laughs> you would think in internal combustion engines not necessarily to start with in you know electric vehicles unless the timelines <laughs> you know the timelines are are wrong so i think when i pointed that out to to clients they were like oh Um, (laughs) you know, like the timelines had not been put together, you know, and, and, uh, you know, for these two, you know, sort of separate, but parallel, potentially parallel technologies. And I think that's a, that's a surprise because they're, they're talked about together. They're talked about as being most effective together. Um, but you know, they are on kind of separate trajectories in terms of commercialization, um, so I don't know if so you have a comment that's, about that. No, that, that, that's, that's
1: absolutely fair. Uh, you know, uh, th- again, there there seems to be a disconnect between the timeline that, uh, our politicians want, want us to believe between, uh, you know, what, what car companies tell us, um, and what, uh, you know, what is actually required to make a meaningful change when it comes to reductions in, uh, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, for example. So, you know, Canada is a good example of this. I mean, Canada has a has a carbon tax. It's currently being fought um, in court um, with you uh-huh. know, by a couple of pro- by a couple of provinces. And uh, you know, the so the Conservative Party currently in Canada is arguing. Look, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau, his his carbon tax, uh, his own his own sort of internal audit has shown that the carbon tax isn't uh, sufficient uh, to have a meaningful uh, impact. Uh, and therefore, what we need to do is eliminate the tax altogether and rely on innovation, et cetera. It's like, well, that's not quite accurate. The, the problem is not that the carbon tax doesn't work. is that it, the, way, the only way it can work is if you increase it significantly. In fact, the, the current estimate is that the carbon tax would need to rise from $0.04 cents a litre currently on gas to so I think it's about $0.52 cents a litre. So it, it, the, sure. the increase needs to be it needs to be quite significant in order to actually meet uh, Canada's climate change obligations. Now, you know, again, now some of that money could potentially be recycled, and you could use that money, for example, to provide individuals with incentives to buy electric vehicles. You certainly could do that, but even over there. That gets to the issue of well, if I'm giving you money to buy a car, would you buy it knowing that the, the car, for example, with the, is severely range limited? I mean, people want things that are good, cheap, and fast, right? And this is the the, yeah. the the great conundrum that engineers have. It's like well, good, cheap, and fast, pick any two, but consumers seem to want it all. <laughs> it, right? It's the reason why people it's the reason why people go out and buy an iPhone that has millions of lines of software code in it, a remarkably intricate and Complicated piece of technology, but no one takes the time to read the manual. Then again, <laughs> you 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 could you could you could put it out in a different way. I I could rephrase it. Yeah. I could say, well, when you when you board a, an airplane to fly, what percentage of people actually read the safety card in front of them? This is a one-page yeah. picture, uh, you know a picture <laughs> card, and we can't even get people to read that. Uh, so I mean, this just chart. gets to the.
0: Well, I mean, but,
1: well, you, you you are in you, you you are along with you know you are in a group with eighty six percent of Americans, right? But this gets to the point that people want everything for nothing, and how do politicians actually address that particular issue? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a while back there was a, when they were talking about Macron's efforts to to increase the tax on diesel. Which mm-hmm. sort of gave gave rise to the the Yellow Vest protests. The Yellow Vest, mm-hmm. precisely. Yeah, and, you know, and and there was a reporter about Reuters, and uh, you know he, he said something very interesting, and I'm paraphrasing here, but effectively what he said was, how do political leaders introduce policies uh, that will ultimately ensure long term good for the environment? Without inflicting extra cost on voters, that in turn damages a, a politician's chances of re-election. And it's a yeah. fascinating question, I, and I'm yeah. not sure I'm not yeah. sure there is an answer to that.
0: Yeah, but you're you are getting at something that has, and this kind of dovetails into into my last question. But one thing that I've really observed the more I study or research for Clients on the on the corporate side. The more I look at policies and sort of how they all you know kind of in- intersect, the more I realize that because um, when when I started out in this field, I uh, was uh, primarily focused on fuel quality improvement. So there really wasn't a consumer behavior component. It was the regulatory state told the oil industry this is what it needs to be, and they generally tended to be a direct, you know, the parameter improvement, let's say in gasoline or diesel, you know, had a direct connection to things like reducing oxides of nitrogen, you know, for example, or volatile organic compounds, which are precursors to ozone, you know, things like that. There wasn't really a behavior component. It was like the state told the oil industry what to do, how to do, you know, and and you know, when to do it by not necessarily how, but when to do it by. And that was kind of the end of the game. Now we get into areas, you know, where we still are looking at air pollution. Now we're looking at climate change. We're looking at policies that reduce congestion. And if you look at things like, you know, fuel economy, I think is a really good example of this, it completely does not involve the consumer necessarily in the behavior. There's no behavioral component. There's no behavioral incentive that really, you know, we've sort of, you know, been coddled, you know, to exactly as you say, you know, we want it good, you know, fast, cheap, and we don't want to take the hit and we don't want to pay higher gas prices, but we want to drive the vehicles that we that we want to drive, um, you know, and we don't think we should have to pay for better fuel economy. All of these kinds of things, like the behavioral component is just, to me, seems to be Missing, and unless we deal with that, I don't see how we kind of achieve you know some of the the goals or countries achieve some of the goals that they might be interested in achieving.
1: That's a fair point these days at least uh, we can take we can take the American electorate, but uh, I think it's true globally I uh, I think there's a young girl Greta, I forget her last name who's oh, sailing across Thunder, the Atlantic yes. right, sailing across <laughs> the Atlantic, apparently because. Air travel is just so bad. Everyone says that they care about the environment, right? Because it's in vogue these days, effectively. It's in vogue to say, well, I care about climate change and we need to fight it. But then you ask people, how much are you willing to pay for it? How much inconvenience, both fiscal or otherwise, are you willing to bear in order to save the planet? And this is where. There's a huge divergence between what people say they care about, so this is their stated preference, versus what they actually do and how they actually behave, which is their revealed preference. I mean, a few months ago, there was a very interesting study that had come out from, I believe it's the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, in which they were looking at the energy demands of different types of technology. And in this particular instance, what they found is, you know one of the most interesting things, it might seem small, but one of the most interesting things you can do to actually reduce your energy footprint is to not charge your cell phone as much because it takes up it shows wow. up energy. And if you and if you look at people today, they're all on their cell phones and that's not enough because then they have the spare battery, you know, that they carry with them.
0: To, you know, to, 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 to,
1: right. So, so the, I, I yeah. understand the same, the same generation that is talking about climate change are the ones that are going around and buying every single possible accessory you can possibly imagine, all of which requires <laughs> energy, right? But we should not just harp on these individuals. The fact of the matter is that people don't want to incur much inconvenience. In mm-hmm. order to feel good about themselves, to say, well, I'm doing something for the environment. I mean, people, you know, let, let's take aviation just as an interesting example. So people are talking or people talk a lot about these big, bad businessmen who are flying business and first class and their, and their carbon footprint is just so high. And, of course, what's interesting about this is if, if you know anything about the aviation industry, the general rule of thumb is that the people who are sitting up front are the ones that generate profit for the airline. The people who are sitting in coach, those fares merely cover the operating expenses associated with the airline. So I've seen yeah. you know, figures, for example, from the ICCT in which they, have, you know, they rank order the most environmentally friendly airlines. And very often, they have all the low fare carriers that are the most environmentally friendly. And the reason why is because you know, low fare carriers very often tend to have the most fuel efficient airplanes. They have the newest airplanes in their fleet. That's yeah. great, minus one small detail, which is the fact that those low fare carriers, because they don't have business and first class cabins, they need to fly the airplane so much more. So their aggregate carbon footprint is so much higher than a, regu- a, you know, a regular conventional airline. The point essentially yeah. is that ulti- ultimately, this uh, addressing climate change is about trade offs. Some of those yeah. trade offs are in the short term, some of those trade offs are in the long term. And until people are willing to have an open and honest discussion about what it is we are and are not willing to accept, the status quo will will persist.
0: So that dovetails right uh, right into my last question, which is, we have a presidential campaign that is uh, starting primarily on the Democrat side. You recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about the Democratic. Presidential candidates' views on addressing climate change. Uh, so, some of them have talked about New Green Deal to pursuing different types of carbon taxation schemes. So, what do you think of such proposals? I mean, to me, I think it gets into exactly what you what you just said. And and you know, what should we be? What kind of policies should we be pursuing? I think I think that's the conversation we need to be having. Sure, Maybe. of course.
1: Uh, look, uh, uh, you know, it's um, you know, I, I joke with with a few of my friends who are very, very liberal. I, I often joke with them, and I say, "Well, it seems as though the the, <laughs> the the democratic platform for addressing anything these days is just raise taxes on someone else." And That's the reason, right. I, uh, the reason, the reason why I say that is because I have gone through the environmental plans that many of the democratic candidates have put out. And overwhelmingly, uh, you know, they talk about the importance of innovation. They talk about investing in green technology, research and development, et cetera. But then when you get to the section where you're, you're trying to figure out how they're going to pay for it, that's where things become a lot more nebulous. Because, you know, the, if either they say they will implement a carbon tax and that tax will only apply to, you know, uh, fossil, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, or they just don't say anything at all. But instead, what they say is we will provide you with subsidies to use green technology, which raises the question, well, I understand you're subsidizing use of the technology, but how are you paying for it? Um, yeah. To me, yeah. a a, rea- a realistic uh, approach uh, is uh, ultimately what I suspect will end up happening is there will be some combination of leveraging green technology coupled with a carbon tax. Uh-huh. that's uh, and and that's not a bad policy to me it's probably the most realistic type of policy you can have really to get everyone across the political spectrum on board you know there's a poison pill for everyone there is no magic yeah. policy that that appeases everyone but that's where i suspect this will end up going it is however quite unfortunate that for a political party that touts the virtues of science and uh, evidence-based policies, that many of the issues you and I have discussed today don't necessarily come up. They don't talk about uh-huh. how silly the idea of carbon neutrality by uh, 2030 actually is. They yeah. don't talk about the, the fact that autonomous vehicles might save lives, but whose lives are we actually saving? They, they don't talk about the fact that the global, the America's problem. Much like many countries, but America's problem when it comes to gasoline and the consumption of gasoline is that gasoline has been far too cheap for far too long. And what yes. that did is it, it allowed societies across and cities, et cetera, across the United States to flourish. And that's a good thing. But it also meant that the price of getting around was and continues to be very cheap relative to the negative social consequences that burning gasoline actually imposes on the population. So now you yeah. have politicians, and it's not their fault, but now you have politicians who are faced with the conundrum of, well, how do we preserve all the, this economic ecosystem that we effectively have, without, you know, uh, while at the same time trying to change how people uh, move in a way that minimizes disruption to the environment? And that's the conversation we need to have. How much are people willing to give up uh, in order mm-hmm. to save the planet? So
0: that's right. Yes, I agree. I agree. And you know, it's just as a as a kind of a final comment. I mean, here we are talking about carbon neutrality by by 2030, and and it's actually not that I don't disagree with the you know the importance or the aim of getting there. I got the timeline. I I have serious questions about without completely you know disrupting society. So we're going to have that discussion, or we'll talk about things like like ZEV mandates. And to me, it's like, and I realize the politics uh, behind this, but still, it's like, you know, just raise the gas tax, you know, really bring it in, you know, for for the social, economic, health, whatever consequences it cause, align the price accordingly. We're ready to go off and do a ZEV mandate. You know, you don't see any of the, the Democratic presidential candidates talking about raising the gas tax. Um, no, and we know why yeah. that is. We know why that is. You know, <laughs> no, wasn't it wasn't even in the Green Deal. You know, it wasn't even in the new Green Deal. It's like if you're really serious, yeah, well, uh, you know. Well, So, so when,
1: I, when I wrote the, 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 the Washington Post piece, someone emailed me and said, oh, no, no, there is no tax because if you read the Green Deal, uh, there's nothing about a tax. And, of course, I went through the, the, the legislative text. And that's technically accurate, but there are allusions to revenue-generating measures. So this is sort of a surreptitious way of saying, well, we know we need to pay for it. We just don't want to be explicit about the fact that we will need to tax some people to pay for it. But, you know, when it comes Uh to climate change, it's it's quite interesting. Um, I think the late George Carlin had a funny joke, although he used more colorful language than I will. But he said, you know, people talk a lot about <laughs> them. We, need to, we need to save the planet. We need to save the planet. And his point was, you know, the planet has been around for a billion years, if not more. And the planet will be just fine in another billion years. Mankind, not so much, but the planet will be just fine. <laughs> which uh, exactly. yeah, yes. which, I, which I have al- which I've always thought yeah. is, 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 is quite amusing. So anyway,
0: yes, yes. All right, we'll leave it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Ashley so much for being on the show today, um, and it was a, it was a real pleasure to have you. Please come back as your research continues. And if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free bi-weekly newsletter. Thanks again for listening.